no one would hire me to make a feature. That was another big motivator for editing Topspin myself. I was basically giving myself the opportunity to edit a feature. And I knew I could do it. It's literally no one would give me that chance if I didn't have a credit. So once I had that credit under my belt and people really saw it and liked it, then I started to be able to get more jobs. That was Sarah Newins talking about her first feature-length documentary, Topspin. And this is So You Work in Entertainment. My name is Adam Klaus, and I've been a full-time voice actor for the last eight years. I didn't really know that you could do that until I was already doing it myself, which made me realize that there are thousands of jobs in the entertainment industry that most people don't know about. This is the podcast where I talk to the people who do those jobs. Sarah is a documentary filmmaker and an editor, and I take you to my conversation with her now. Thank you for coming in, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So you work in entertainment? I do, although I never thought of it like that, actually. Enter- really? Entertainment sounds like, ooh, it's the biz or something, but I don't know. There's this like weird compulsion to tell stories that I've had for a very long time. Okay. And that's always just been my goal is to figure out how to tell stories. I never think of it as entertainment, oddly. Well, everybody else thinks of it as entertainment, so I guess it doesn't matter what you think of it, right? <laughs> Well, I guess I also just don't think of it necessarily always about the end result or goal. Okay. You know, it's the process, which can be very harrowing, but for some reason it's like I can't stop doing it. This is what I love about you because it's such an internal pure thing. And I feel like that comes through. The way we met is one of my favorite things Mm -hmm. because we were both separately at an Airbnb in Joshua Tree. Mm -hmm. I was there with my clown school friends. (laughs) You were also friends with my clown school friends. We'd never met before. We started chatting. We really hit it off. Friend Isaac came up and he was like, oh, I'm glad you two met each other. Sarah makes documentaries. Adam, you love documentaries. And I had seen Topspin, your documentary, in the wild, completely unprompted before having any idea who who you were or anything. It was kind of wild. Yeah, no, that was crazy. It's not the most accessible documentary. So it was very exciting to know that you'd seen it and genuinely liked it because you didn't know me. So you weren't biased. True. It's right up my alley. I love ping pong. I call it ping pong. I've played table table tennis before, but most of the time when I play, it's called ping pong. (laughs) And it was a really great documentary. It was cool how you followed three it was three people right Mm -hmm. in their bid for the olympics through teenagers yeah that how did that there's a billion questions i want to ask you let's back up before we get to that where are you from originally well i grew up in new jersey mostly okay and i went to high school in atlanta are you telling stories in in high school are you do you have a camera in your hands or what no Mm -mm. i just obsessively watch movies though I've since learned that rewatching films is like sort of a comforting thing for people who have anxiety. Okay. <laughs> Cuz you like know what's going to happen. I watched the same movies over and over and over again. When I was like early teens, I would sit down and write dialogue out cuz I thought it was so cool. From the movie? Yeah, like The Breakfast Club. <laughs> I've seen a 100 times. I could probably recite to you right now. We should pivot <laughs> you know? the podcast and have that be it. <laughs> Hang on, let me pull up the script. <laughs> I recently made a huge fool of myself in front of Emilio Estevez, actually. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, it's the most embarrassing thing ever. I was so starstruck. I just, I never get starstruck. I was so starstruck. Emilio Estevez is the one who did it for you, huh? Okay. Yeah. He was a presenter at the, um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping away. Do you want to hear this story? You I do want to hear this story. Are you kidding me? So, Alan Farrow was nominated for... Alan V. Farrow, which you were the editor on. I was one of the editors, yeah. The ace 
the Eddie Awards, which is like the American. Actually, what does it even stand for? The the editor. It's like the big editing award. Okay. <laughs> I can't believe I don't remember what A stands for. This again. American Cinema Editors or something. It's a testament to how pure you are. You're not in it for the awards. <laughs> no. So he was a presenter. And then at the after party, he was, a, I didn't even realize he was standing in front of me at the bar and he got his drink and turned around and he was right in front of my face. And I was like, I just have to say hello. And I said, I've watched you since I was a kid. And then I did the stream of consciousness thing where I was like, oh God, why did I just say that? That's probably the most annoying thing. Does that make you feel so old? Why did I say that? And I just like, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And couldn't he just, the, his eyes just kept slowly getting bigger and bigger. And I was like, <laughs> okay, he wants me to, to just back away. But he was very nice. He took, stuck out his hand and shook my hand and then told me to get a drink. I wonder how many times a week that happens to Amelia West of us. That's why I was like, that was so unoriginal. I was so mad at myself. So Atlanta, you're not telling stories. You're watching movies over and over again, writing out the dialogue. Where do you go to college then after high school? I went to college in Ohio, oddly enough, because my mom, my parents are from the Midwest and convinced me to apply out there. She was like, please just pick one school in the midwest just one okay and a girl in the grade above me was at miami of ohio so i applied and then i visited and it was like quintessential college campus brick buildings big quads with green grass and it was all very quaint huh. it looked like college so i went isn't that funny that we make such huge decisions about the future of our lives when we're kids yeah what did you study in undergrad well i mean i didn't take school all that seriously Okay. Sort of had a vague idea of wanting to study journalism. But then the, my school didn't have a journalism program. So it was like I was sort of just figuring it out sort of aimlessly. And then mass communication was like the broad, the very broad major. Okay. Where there was like some classes about media. And there was like a class where everybody in the class took a turn as a different role at a TV station, like a cable access show. Oh, okay. Sure. Rotate so, through, kind of see what you exactly. like. Exactly. And what stuck out to you there? Well, I learned Final Cut Pro. That was cool. It never crystallized in my brain to be an editor at that point. But and we made some really silly mockumentaries in my class. Okay. Um, and I was obsessed with Christopher Guest growing up, too. Oh, me, too. What so, was the movie that got you into Christopher Guest? It was SNL. It was when he was a writer on there. There was a spe very specifically a short with Harry Shearer and Martin Short. Okay. They played synchronized swimmers, but they were in the shallow end. Yep. Do you remember what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and I just, as a very young kid, thought that was so funny. So yeah. then I went on to make many mockumentaries <laughs> in my young days. For me, it was Waiting for Guffman. I distinctly remember my sister Annie and my cousin Eric at Thanksgiving, they rented Waiting for Guffman. And I was like too young to understand what was going on, but I just could not take my eyes off it. And I didn't understand, was this real? Is this fake? It was all this very vague thing for me, but I was hooked. And then, of course, like Spinal Tap and all that came later. And it was just like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Spinal Tap. Yeah. Spinal <clears throat> Tap was a that was just a constant repeat for me. Yeah. It oh, changed the game. So Final Cut Pro, which is an editing software for those not familiar, you kind of glom onto that. How do you get to Stanford? Well, there's many years in between. Oh, OK. I, I um, graduated undergrad and I moved to New York City because by that time my parents had moved back to New Jersey and that was like the closest city and I was like oh, I'll just start looking for jobs you know 
Sure. And I interviewed and I ended up getting a job at CBS News. I worked in like the, the beta room. So we would archive and barcode tapes for the local news. Okay. <laughs> it was really boring and monotonous. And I, I eventually, maybe like six months later, like begged them to teach me something. I was like, please, I cannot do this anymore. Sure. I'm, like I'm wasting my brain. And so they taught me to edit. So I started editing for the local news. And how old are you when that's happening? I was 22, 23. And this is this is tape, right? It's before digital? I was tape to tape. And then very shortly after I got there, they started doing digital. But it was like this program called News Byte. It was like painting by number. I mean, it was really rudimentary editing. But Okay. I mean, you don't need to be fancy. You have like 10 minutes to turn around footage. Yeah, that's what I always wonder about. You know, I've dabbled in editing for personal projects and stuff, and I'm just always blown away by how much time it takes to do everything. And then to see like, like when you're watching sports and they show replays of things, it's like that happened half a second ago and we already have it all queued up. And then we cut to the other, the alternate angle of it. Very impressive the speed at which that works. Mm-hmm. So how long were you there editing at CBS? Seven years. Seven years. Wow. Yeah. It was probably like four too many. It wasn't a very fulfilling job, but it, I mean, it paid well. I was in the union then. Oh, wow. Okay. I lived in New York in my 20s and had a blast. Sure. Eventually, I just, you know, started to investigate how to tell stories in longer form because these things were like 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. And, you know, you'd make it in the span of a day. So also, I wasn't very valued there. There was a lot of sexism (laughs) and I wasn't very fast. Because I would be meticulous about things that nobody cared about. Sure. And my supervisor would yell at me all the time. Yeah. It's just churn and burn in that, right? Yeah. And there's just no soul in it. So I tried to figure out how to use that skill for longer form stuff. And um, my friend was teaching a workshop in Mississippi, a documentary filmmaking workshop, four weeks. And he was like, why don't you just come? There's only like four other people in this thing. Like, you can just come. I have all this equipment that's being donated, Canon camera, Apple computers, and Final Cut Pro. And I was like, oh, yeah, I knew Final Cut Pro once upon a time. Sure. So I had no idea what stories were there. I had no idea what I was going to find. I'd never been to Mississippi in my entire life. He grew up there. That's why he decided to host these workshops there. And as soon as I got there and started meeting people in this small town of Clarksdale, which is in the Delta, it's also famously like where the crossroads where like Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. Went down to the crossroads. Yeah. Yeah. There's a million stories there. It's like where the blues were born. Sure. And there were all these old bluesmen and I was going to juke joints and drinking moonshine and (laughs) I was living in a sharecropper shack. Wow. (laughs) Her former sharecropper shack that was turned into a motel. And I met this 14-year-old girl who was like a guitar prodigy. She's like 14-year-old white girl playing with these like 60, 70-year-old bluesmen That's in a band. Cool. And she was she just blew my mind. She was so talented. I still remember so clearly the day I like met her and I went back to where we were having this workshop and I said to my friend Chandler, I was like, I know what I want to do. I met this girl. And he's he said to me, he said, there was like a parade following you when you came in here. Like you had that kind of energy. Like you were so excited. And I, I think everything solidified in those four weeks. It just was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Wow. That's amazing. Have you kept up with the girl? Not not a ton. No, I did for a long time. But, you know, that was like 20 years ago now or something. 15, 
Was she still playing when you were keeping up with her? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, so the, the big conflict in my film was that she was an amazing blues guitar player. She was playing with these in these bands, but she really wanted to play rock and roll. And she wasn't quite as good at that. Like, she wanted to be like Evanescence, which was, which will date it for you. They were like the big band at the time. Oh, I know exactly who Evanescence is. <laughs> you don't have to wake me up to that. No, but I'm just saying, like, they're not big anymore. That was like their peak yep. time. Goth was so fashionable mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. But she just wasn't as good at rock and roll. So she, her career never really... Didn't take on as she wanted yeah. it to. So what do you do with this newfound knowledge that, that what you want to make documentaries? Where do you go from there? Well, then I, I was like, I live in New York City. This is where everybody makes documentaries, right? I really tried to get involved. I volunteered, did stuff for different filmmakers for like, what, what was I? Oh, I was like a film festival point person for one filmmaker. And I mm. was like trying to just absorb whatever I could. But like nobody would give me a chance, really. N- no one would hire me to do anything. Or I don't know. It just I felt very impenetrable. Okay. That world felt very insular. I guess I didn't really have a lot of experience, but I was really proud of this short that I made about this guitar player, and I ended up looking at grad school. I think I felt like between, there was like a lot of sexism and ageism at CBS, and and then there was this feeling of like, I wasn't good enough to be part of that documentary world, and that those two things combined, I think made me think, I should go to grad school because I want to build an expertise, you know? Sure. And at least have that like outward legitimacy for people. Yeah. To see the degree on the wall kind of deal. Yeah. Even though almost everybody told me not to go. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone I would talk to, except for my my one friend, Evan, he was the one person who was encouraging me. I think everyone else around me said, don't waste money on grad school. Go make your own movie. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. I, I need to find a community. I need to find collaborators. I want to steep myself in like the history of document. I'm not going to s- self-motivate and sit here and like watch Nanook of the North through today. I need somebody to tell me what to watch and read and people who will discuss, sit around and talk about film. And then, oh, actually, also what happened, my film about the blues guitar player, which was titled All This Blues, I started submitting to film festivals, and that actually got into the Sarasota Film Festival. Okay. And so I went to that in, I think it was 2007. My film was part of a shorts program with many films, but one of the films really stuck out to me, and I was like, this, this is amazing. Like, I want to make films like this. It was purely observational, and you just don't see a lot of films like that without talking, you know, narration or interviews sure. driving it. I just thought it was so beautiful. And in the credits, it said Stanford University. Okay. I was like, oh, what's that program? So that's how I initially heard about that program. Wow. And then I started researching it. And, you know, it was like eight students per year they accept into it. Wow. And it's really tiny. And there, at the time, I think there was only two programs that had documentary MFAs. All the film schools are mostly, you know, for fiction and screenwriting and all that. So how do you go from seeing that title on the screen to being at Stanford? Well, that's kind of a funny story, too. I ended up having an interview that I thought went really well, but then I ended up on the wait list, and I was, like, devastated. It felt like a rejection. Sure. I was devastated. 
And I called the director of the program and I was like, what can I do to be at the top of the list? Like, this is the only place I want to go. This is my dream. I'd never even visited the campus or anything. I just had this like feeling that's what I, where I needed to be. Yeah. And she was like, sorry, there's really nothing you can do. It doesn't work. There's not like a hierarchy. It's basically like for every student we accept, we have one alternate. So it was like, it would have to be that person that I was alternate. Wow. So you're actively rooting against one human being yeah. in this. Okay. So I just fully accepted my fate. I was like, Ugh, this isn't going to happen. I was devastated. And three months later, a month before the program started, a girl got pregnant and dropped out. Wow. <laughs> wow. And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to California. You never hear about the benefits of unplanned pregnancy. But this is a true... <laughs> true hero story <laughs> yeah i mean and i i don't i don't know if i was necessarily you know if i was the her alternate because later on the director of the program jan told me that it would really made a difference that i called and expressed my like passion for it sure i mean i think the overarc of the story is your true conviction for wanting it right everybody's telling you no you get on the wait list the huge wait but you still fought for it and then what was that experience like I mean, I look back on it very fondly. I'm sure there were times where I was pulling my hair out and pulling all-nighters trying to hit deadlines and finish, you know. I mean, it was very rigorous in the sense that we were studying theory and we were in production at the same time. So I had a lot of classes that were just watching films and writing papers. And then we were on the quarter system. So every 10 weeks, we were making another short Oh wow! in the first year. And then the second year, we had the whole year to do our thesis. Did I you mean, find that community that you wanted? Oh, well, I think the most important thing that came out of that was that I did find a filmmaking partner, Mina. We ended up working together and just worked so well together. And one of the reasons why we knew that was because all the other pairs in our class were like toxic, like not good pairings. Yeah. Like there was a lot of drama. Gotcha. But Mina and I, we like, we're like, oh, we just really have the same sensibility here. This is great. And that short we made about 14-year-old Ariel, who was the top junior champion in table tennis. And then cut to a year later, she's going to be trying out for the Olympic team. And how did you find her? There was an article in the New York Times about the Bay being like a hotbed of junior table tennis champions. And you just, so you read the article and you thought, oh, this could be it? Yeah, it could be fun. I didn't know that Topspin started when you were at Stanford. How does that go from being a short to watching it on Netflix several years later? Basically, we made the short and then a year later found out that she was going to try out for the Olympic team. And then we also came across an article about this young man from New York. He was the youngest national champion and they were both teenagers and they were both going to try out for the team and I don't exactly remember like the moment that we decided but we figure we follow at, oh okay let me back up so at that time Kickstarter which is the crowdfunding mm -hmm. website was just starting to get hot okay and so and I think we had somebody come to one of our classes who had successfully raised like a lot of money for her feature film and we thought oh maybe I don't know we just sort of started piecing together the idea of crowdfunding to get money to follow these kids around for a year and it was like a competition film there's sort of a blueprint for it it's like we can you know we can make our first feature figure this out and then start to kind of break the rules and make weird films if we want but sure. like it seemed like a smart thing to do because we had the access 
we knew we had an audience because making that short the year before, we had kind of became embedded in that community. And the Bay is like huge, especially in like the San Jose area. It's like huge, huge. Okay. So then we graduated and launched the Kickstarter that week because we were like, oh, people are going to want to give us graduation presents and they can just donate to this crowdfunding. So we raised enough money to go to Beijing that summer. And that's where the kids were training. And how long were you following them or with them in Beijing? I mean, that was like 10 days or something. The entire film takes place over how long? Year and a half. It was basically from that summer through the Olympics. Of those 18 months, how many months are you filming? I mean, I think every couple weeks we'd go on a shoot. We ended up filming in five different countries. Are you running the camera at this point or? We were both. I've always wondered, you have 18 months of footage. How do you whittle that down? Where does What does that process look like? from editing, from storytelling, is that something that you're watching all the footage and then kind of making notes from there? Or while you're shooting, do you know, oh, this is definitely going in? Just kind of peel back the curtain on that for me. I mean, it's a combination of things. And it also depends on what kind of film you're making. But something that is verite driven, where you're trying to capture all of the events as they're unfolding, you know, I'm not thinking or worrying so much about should this be in the film or not. I'm I'm just trying to get it. Sure. And I think having been an editor for a long time already, it's easy for my brain to go, okay, I need to watch that. I need this. I have my list of things I need to get. Sure. But it's a, it's a balance. It's like a dance because you want to be, you want to have a plan, but you also want to be open to what's unfolding because, you know, with documentaries, you just don't know. For sure. It's nice too that you kind of knew when this was going to end, right? Because a lot of documentaries, I feel like sometimes they're like, well, when do we stop filming? When is the story over for our purposes? But with this, like that outdate of do they make it, do they not make it, you kind of have that clearly spelled out. Exactly. That was like a big reason why we went for it. Yeah. Because it was there, the arc, the spine of the story was laid out. Sure. So how do you get that on Netflix? I've always wondered how does that distribution work? I mean, it's kind of an opaque process. I don't totally know. We made the film completely independently. It had a lot of challenges financially. How much did you raise on Kickstarter? We ended up doing two campaigns. The first one we did, I think, was like 20 or 25K. And then the second one we did was 75K. So the first one was for production and the second one was for post-production. Wow. I had to take jobs in between. So it ended up taking two years to edit. Gotcha. And you're taking editing jobs? Yeah. So once you get the film to the place that you want it, you have a producing partner who's working on the distribution or...? So we made it completely independently. It was mostly just Mina and myself. The beauty of making an independent film is there's no one telling you how to tell the story. Sure. And giving you notes and making you cut things that you love. And, you know, we really got to make the film we wanted to make. Sure. And and then we submitted to festivals and it premiered at Doc NYC. Okay. Which, you know, has a bit of a market for selling films. Once we got in, we went to some different sales. I mean, there's only like four sales agents for documentaries so i think we went to all of them okay and one of them said great and you know tried to connect us with buyers at the, during the film festival and then eventually we got an offer from first run features okay which is a small distributor and they were the ones who organized like a very small like four city theatrical premiere so we were in theaters and then they were the ones who also got it on netflix and amazon and that's so amazing because this is your first feature, right? Mm-hmm. 
So with the sales agents, do you sign any agreement with them or how does that work? They represent your film, right? Oh, yeah. I think for 12 years or something. There was a huge contract, I remember, and we didn't have a lawyer. (laughs) We didn't have money. to. You were a sales agent's dream. (laughs) And so I think we just signed whatever they gave us. It's a weird process. Do you remember how long it was from when you had the meeting with the sales agent to when you got word that it was actually picked up by First Run? It wasn't that long, if I remember correctly, but it's all very hazy. Sure. I'm sorry. I don't mean to get completely caught up in the film that came out eight years ago, but it is. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think like a a lot of times things, things happen on the heels of festivals because that's when you kind of have the the heat, you know, and we got some good reviews. We got an amazing review in the Wall Street Journal. We got, you know, we were called like the, or was it the LA Times? Oh, shoot. One, one of them said we were a table tennis hoop dreams. If you That's don't know huge. what hoop dreams is, it's like Oscar-winning Steve James documentary from the '90s about basketball players in Chicago. It's one of the most highly regarded documentaries ever. And you're right there alongside them in Wall Street Journal and L.A. Times. Let's mm-hmm. just call it that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so what? What's the moment like after that? Like this is obviously such a huge rush of all these feelings and everything. The question that I always have for something like that is like, what is the next day, right? Because there's a decay on this feeling, isn't there? I don't know if there was a huge celebration in that because they didn't pay us for the film. Oh, that's a detail there. That's the, This is like the, the tra- tragedy of the documentary world. It, you cannot make money off of it. It is a hobby for most people. So um, you didn't get you didn't get anything. I didn't make, we made zero dollars from selling it to First Run. The deal was we're not giving you any money, but we'll pay for the theatrical run. So they they paid for hard costs, but we didn't get money for it. Then they negotiated with Netflix and a few other places. What we ended up getting was sort of nominal because you have to split it with First Run and the sales agent. Sure. There's a lot of hands in that. So, I mean, eventually we did get some money back. But when you consider four years of not paying yourself to work on film, you're not even coming close to breaking even, you know? Sure, sure. I would just say it became very clear when we made Top Spin that it wasn't sustainable. I couldn't pay my bills. Gotcha. That way. Okay. So then I was like, I threw myself head into editing because that was my already my craft specifically in documentary editing or is this you're taking whatever you can get how do you get editing jobs at this point prior to top spin i mean i was doing videos for nonprofits, and i did like little videos for facebook and little short things mm-hmm. no one would hire me to make a feature it's like that chicken or egg thing like how do you get experience if somebody doesn't take a chance on you but if you if you don't have experience you don't get the chance exactly that was another big motivator for editing topspin myself because then i was basically giving myself the opportunity to edit a feature sure and i knew i could do it it's literally no one would give me that chance if i didn't have a credit so once i had that credit under my belt and people really saw it and liked it then i started to be able to get more jobs and with work with friends i worked on shorts i worked on actually fiction stuff too is your your producing partner mina is she an editor as well or that's all you no she did a lot more of the producing stuff and i did a lot more of the post which is why you guys were a great team right yeah and still you still work together to this day right yeah we just finished another feature actually what's that feature it's called racist trees okay the story is about a historically black neighborhood that has effectively been segregated from the rest of 
Palm Springs, which is a very white affluent city. Mm-hmm. And they've been separated since the late 1950s by a wall, 60 foot trees that feel like a wall, branches top to bottom, you can't see through them. They're also an eyesore and they're not native to the desert. So then they steal resources from the land. And it's just, they're a big pain for this community because it lines the properties there. And also the 14th fairway of a city-owned golf course. Okay. There's it's, some deep symbolism for you. Mm-hmm. And so I we caught wind of it when there was an article about how this community had been trying to get the trees removed for decades and the city had just kind of ignored them. And then it wasn't until recently where the neighborhood started to gentrify and there was like this white activist who came in and started making a lot of noise that the city finally like couldn't ignore it anymore. And they took them down? Uh, it's a spoiler. I can't tell you. <laughs> you got to watch Racist Trees you if gotta, you want to know the yeah, end. Yeah, if it ever comes out. We're, we're actually in that same process now, submitting to festivals. Hopefully we'll get a premiere somewhere and try to sell it because we made this one also independently. The difference is now, though, there's a big difference between Topspin and Racist Trees, which is our second feature. So between then and now, I edited a, a lot for years for other people. Mm-hmm. It took us this long to finish another film independently but the difference was that we had a co-production partner who financed it oh okay they're sort of responsible for distribution and selling it who's this person how did you find them it's a company called wayfarer studios i think their mission is like to cure the isms of the world or something and so our film is very clearly tackling racism sure and it's just they caught wind of it because we had initially been pitching it as a series and we had like a 15 minute pilot that was going to premiere at South by Southwest in 2020, which was canceled. But they were then put online that was available only to industry folks. And then somebody saw it on there and contacted us. So how do you get editing now? Do you have an, do you have an agent for editing? No, but I have considered this because I do know more and more editors who are doing it. And it, it's become this very valuable thing. It's a really exciting time to be an editor because... And streaming got so much more popular, so did documentaries. Mm -hmm. And so the popularity has increased so much that every studio, every network, every streamer, they're all making long-form documentaries Mm -hmm. now. A trend in documentary that I personally loathe is series. Mm. You will have an hour and a half worth of story stretched over three hour and a half episodes. (laughs) Right? In some cases. I mean, I'd like to think Alan B. Farrow was a four-parter. Okay. And I like to think we earned all four parts of that. I apologize. I've not seen it yet. That's okay. It's, a, it's not th- that. It's not the kind of thing you want to kick back and... And this is the deal. Two years ago when we were trying to set this up initially and we were talking, you told me that you were working on that. I was like, cool, I'm definitely going to watch it. Literally every time that I've sat down to watch it, I'm like, I don't think I'm emotionally ready for this. Yeah. I think a lot of people have told me that they're afraid to watch it because of their love for Woody. Okay. I it, mean... I can How does separate that... art from the artist now, personally. I feel like much more confident in that. But I feel bad telling you this, that I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't watch your work, but it's, it's also your work, right? It's about Woody Allen's work, but it's also your work that people are like choosing to skip out on, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's so heavy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely understand if you never wanted to watch it. I get it. It's about child sex abuse, which is probably one of the most taboo and most uncomfortable topics Mm -hmm. in our culture. And actually working on that made me 
think a lot about trying to tell more stories in that arena because it, it needs to become a little bit more normalized. I think it's really unfortunate how people don't want to touch it. I think that's a thing, working on that. And I also worked right before that I worked on another film about sex abuse. On the record? On the record. Okay. Both projects with Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering who are sort of known for making films that like impact legislation and like go up against big institutions and really affect change in the world, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to work with them. I learned more than I ever need to know about sexual abuse, but <laughs> one of the things being how common childhood sex abuse is. And people just don't, they just don't want to hear it. Watching that footage all day, editing, making choices upon it, making choices on the story, that has to weigh on you, right? I imagine there's so many long days on top of just the labor that editing anything is on top of it to be such a heavy subject. How does that affect you or how do you deal with that? I don't know that I've figured that out very well, honestly. It was, it's really hard. It's really, really heavy. And I don't know that I came up with the best coping mechanisms, honestly. I think specifically on the record was really bad. I think by the time I started working at Alan B. Farrow, I figured out a little more that I had to prioritize my own mental health and like go for walks and exercise and take breaks easier also because it was a pandemic. Yeah. So you have a setup in your home, right? Mm-hmm. What's a typical day look like for you? Are you setting your own schedule or what? I mean, I try to keep sort of regular-ish business hours, but you never know like when inspiration is going to strike. Like I can have a day of editing where I literally push things around on a timeline and it's it's just not clicking i'm like trying a million things and it's not working and i get absolutely nothing or very very little done i'll maybe have like a two minute sequence that feels good at the end of the day i had a day like that yesterday actually but then you have days where you're like just on fire and i'm getting through a whole thing you know i've mapped out a whole thing and it's all working and the music feels good and it feels watchable and it makes sense and you find the right pieces puzzle pieces that fit together i'll blink and like 16 hours will go by sure when it's footage that you haven't shot you're seeing it for the first time it's let's say it's your first day on the job of of this project where do you start in that editing process it's like somebody hands you like a big bag and they're like have fun how do you open that bag what do you where do you even begin? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what happened to me with On the Record. They handed me a hard drive with 50 hours of footage that they hadn't even seen because they weren't, they being the directors, weren't in the field for that shoot. So they, they hand you 50 hours and they tell you what they need to whittle it down to or you don't even know at that point? No, they were just like making assembly which is basically watching everything and pulling selects and building like a rough chronology very rough string out of scenes. And you're watching that in real time, right? You're not speeding that up. That's mm -hmm. just 50 hours of your life. Minimum. Yeah, yeah, I'm watching it in real time. And when I see something I like, I stop in out, keep going. Okay. For something like that, do you remember of the 50 hours that you watched, how much makes it through that first pass? Yeah, it's weird. I never planned this, but it always ends up being about half the length of time. Every time I do a pass, it gets about half as long. Let's say I'm looking at 50 hours of footage, and in that, I identify 10, 15 scenes. Okay. So then this scene might be an hour. I pull my selects, it'll be 30 minutes. And then I do it again, and it'll be about 15. And then I do it until finally, it's like three to five minutes. It's like a first assembly. Wow. For one scene. For one scene. And then I string them all out. And then you have an overall assembly that's probably like two hours or something. Okay. Yeah. 
It's so funny. I started to pay attention to that at some point because a lot of people asked me my process. And oh, I should mention this is for verite footage. If you're watching interviews, it's different. Are you very organized in your uh, outside of editing life? Extremely. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I mean, I really like to organize things. It's like a weird compulsion thing. It's not like an OCD thing. I just like to be organized and I like to color code things, for example, or I like to have labels on things. I don't know. I just like this is a dream scenario for you. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to have some level of that to be an editor. Like, it's a very specific personality that has the patience for that minutia. Yeah. And how long are you on this project? How many months? Well, in both of those situations, we had a lot of time because they didn't have a delivery to a network on the horizon. Gotcha. It was really like, they have the money, they had the funding to take the time to really tell a complex nuanced story so on the record took 18 months in post-production and i think alan b farrow i came in halfway through for that but i think total they worked on it somewhere between two and three years i mean it's crazy how does your process change when you come in halfway through and you're picking up where somebody else left off it wasn't really like i was picking up in that situation the two other editors who had been on it from the beginning Kayla and Parker, the three of us ended up sharing the workload. Like we'd pass things off to one another. It's really helpful, actually. I loved working with them because you can get too close to it. You watch something so many times, you, you're desensitized or sure. something. And it's just too familiar. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really hard to, to problem solve when you feel like it all kind of looks the same after a certain point. So then you, it was like, oh, I can just pass that on to Parker. He can take a crack at it now. Whereas like with on the record, that was just me. I did not have that. That was all me, and that was really hard. But at the same time, like the, I mean, the, all me being the only editor, obviously the directors are very involved. Sure. What kind of what's a typical like interaction that you have with the the director about something when you're when you're editing like along the way, you're uploading something for them, they're watching it. What kind of notes are they giving back? Depends on the director. Like some are way more attuned to editing, like cut from here to here, cut out this line. This piece can be moved here. There's a lot of stuff done on paper. I'll send a cut and have a paper transcript of that, and then the director can manipulate it on paper. Gotcha. Or like some directors just don't have that kind of sensibility, so then it'll be more general, like this feels too long, or this hmm. should feel more dramatic, or whatever. They kind of let you run with it. This more. was confusing. This was yeah. So what is a what's a great day of editing look like for you? You ask a lot of editing questions. Do you not want to talk about it? No, I'm just I'm just surprised because like no one asked me this. No one who's not an editor tends to care that much about. <laughs> People care about this sort of stuff. I swear. Do you want to be an editor? I like certain aspects of editing, but I don't know that I could do the work of it. Just because you like to cook doesn't mean you should open a restaurant. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yeah, People do not understand what goes into it. It is really complicated. Some of your credits are supervising editor. What? How does that work versus being just this, this straightaway editor? That's a union title, right? No, I, I've never had to deal with the union in the documentary world. It's an interesting time because there's a lot of hybridization happening. The reality TV world is now getting embedded with the independent documentary world. Mm -hmm. And it's like two different machines, but it's it's like two different languages. 
But there's like a weird blending happening now and there isn't a union involved in those jobs. I mean, a lot of credits are sort of nebulous and you sort of decide, like, I did a little bit of editing. I wasn't a lead. Do I want an additional editor credit or do I want a supervising or do I want a consulting or, you know, it's sort of at the discretion of the editor a lot of times. Or, you know, the the editor and the directors, producers have to come to an agreement, of course. Gotcha. Oh, but I mean, supervising can mean a lot of different things to answer your question. It's a little bit less about getting your hands dirty and more about talking, looking at outlines, paper edits, talking through structure, giving feedback on cuts. So when you said that you're a part of an editing team, yeah, what are the other people's titles and what are their roles on that team? Well, on a lot of jobs that I get now, there's typically like multiple people working in the post department. You know, at the very least, I'll have an assistant editor who does a lot of technical support, does a lot of exports. You know, I always love when I get to work with AEs who also want to be creative, because then if there's time permitting, I can say, hey, why don't you try cutting the scene? You know, one of the things I'm hoping to do more of actually is mentorship, because I never had one and I always wanted one. And now I'm in a position where I could potentially be one. So then there's an assistant editor and then sometimes there's two I had two assistant editors on on the record. That was lovely. And then there's oftentimes an associate editor who's just kind of like a junior, just working their way up, you know, who does more creative stuff, less technical stuff. Okay. But maybe not as seasoned as somebody like I am now. Okay. And then there's like often a post-producer or a post-production supervisor who's overseeing all of it, making sure everyone's doing their jobs and getting cuts to the network and getting stuff with graphics and archival and coordinating all of it. Gotcha. That's usually the crew. I don't want to get too in the weeds about editing. I mean, I do. Too late. <laughs> but when you're you're watching footage, you're taking notes on paper, you're typing out, you're not doing no. any of that. You're just watching. Yeah. Some people do. Some people... I actually took this class, my God, in the early 2000s in New York at a place called the Edit Center. Okay. It was like how I got a refresher on Final Cut Pro. The cool thing about that course was called The Art of Editing. It was like six weeks. And the cool thing about that course is that they would bring in directors who had just shot a film, and the class would build the assembly for that director. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Every student got a scene or two scenes. And the guy who started this edit center was known for editing documentaries. And so he taught his process, which was to watch everything. Do not stop. Do not like ever hit pause and literally write down your impressions as you're watching it. And the theory behind that being your first watch is the most valuable. Sure. And it like you can never have your first impression ever again. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be writing down like the emotional place that you're <laughs> that you're in, things that you like. And in theory a great idea, but you have to have the luxury of time to do that. Sure. I mean, I've just never had that. I just never felt like I had the time to take to do that. And it always felt more efficient to pull things as I'm going and make notes that way. Well, I suppose there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Oh, my God. Every editor has their own process. That has to make things somewhat difficult if you're coming in midstream on a project, right? I can. Yeah. I think the most important relationship is the director-editor relationship with other editors. I mean, you can't be too precious about anything if you're co-editing with somebody. Sure. There has to be some some grace and being like, I don't own this. This is a collaboration. Yeah, it's give and take. Yeah, the more important thing is like, is this a, the right fit? And I've worked with some directors where it's just like 
it's a chemistry thing. It's like we do not have the right chem. We're not going to work well together for whatever reason. Sure. How is it different editing a documentary versus editing something scripted? You prefer to work in documentary. Is that fair to say? I mean, it's hard to compare because I just get way more documentary jobs. Okay. But I've cut two fiction feature films, like super baby indie films. Freeland was one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It looked really beautiful. Yeah. Those, my friends, Kate McLean and Mario Forloni co-directed that and he shot it. He's a cinematographer and I worked with both of them before as in the documentary world and they jumped over to fiction and co-wrote and co-directed a feature and brought me on because we had already worked together. We knew we worked well together. Sure. And I loved it. It was so fun. How long were you on that project? A feature length editing? Not that long. It takes way less time to cut fiction than documentary, which makes me think I should change course all the time. But I don't know. I think it was in a couple spurts, but maybe like three months, four months. But I also had to, you know, it was again, super indie. Mm -hmm. When the opportunity for on the record came along, I had to take that. Sure. Got to make that paper. Yeah. Yeah. So they brought on somebody else to finish it. Is that hard to see? It was a little hard. I mean, Chris, Chris Donlin is his name. He's an amazing editor and he has way more experience in that world. So it was really good for the project. Slightly bruised my ego. Sure. (laughs) When you watch it back, do you notice the spots of like, well, I mean, I had a sequence in there that was maybe a little better. Is there any of that or are you able to detach yourself from it more? a little bit of it but it's very fleeting sure you know you know as a whole it's a really beautiful film and they did a great job gotcha and then there's i think in in equal measure there's like moments of pride where it's like oh that's still there i did that sure sure what would surprise people something like you may not know this but an editor actually does this like what people don't know about editing i know there's a ton that people don't know about (laughs) editing but the stuff that maybe like even people in the industry aren't aware that editors have to deal with well you start to dream about editing like how well first of all so many of my dreams are like the avid or premiere interface yeah <laughs> like that's just so burned in my brain but then sometimes i like weirdly solve problems in my sleep and i'll wake up and i'll think oh i just need to put that piece there yeah and i'm like oh my god i solved it yeah in my sleep crazy isn't that funny because you obsess over something and then the second that you get away it's like then your mind decides oh we have the answer yeah i feel like a lot of times i'm fighting that voice in my head where i'm like i'm so fixated on solving something and i'm it's like walk away just walk away all you need to do is walk away but i'm like (laughs) pulling yourself away from the keys but i mean i truly think it's like you have to be totally obsessed to be a good editor i mean i just feel so all consumed by projects whether i'm editing or directing or doing both i don't know how people have time for anything else who do this like people who have families people who have kids like i don't do not understand it it takes over my whole life to the point where i'm like having a real existential crisis about it are you happy (laughs) what you can't ask me that question (laughs) what do you mean happy happy how do you, you find this work fulfilling you get out of it more than you put in? I think I was really driven by ambition for a long time. Enough where I didn't really like question the path that I was on. Okay. And then I started to really like achieve some success. And like I've gotten to a point in my career now where it's it's really it's gratifying because people seek me out. They want me to edit their film. Sure. You know. Now that I'm sort of at that level, it just makes me wonder, like, do I want to make my whole life about work? 
I don't know. It's gratifying in a lot of ways, but I don't know. There's also just the the amount that it takes out of me, especially on the ones that are on heavier subjects. Sometimes I don't know if it's worth it. Sure. Is there something that you think you'd rather do? No, that's the problem. When you said that you try to keep conventional hours, were you lying? I mean, no. I think that like that's mainly just because that's when the director, you know, when the directors are working. How many hours is an average workday? 10 to 12. Okay. Is that a union rate or it's a day, it's covered under a day thing or? I mean, the the sort of industry standard, again, there's no union. Industry standard is 10 hours. Wait, there's no union for editors? No. Not at all? No. Not I, even? Not, no, 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 there You're is. talking about documentary, right? Sorry. Yes, of course. The, yes, there is a union, but the kind of jobs that I get are non-union jobs. Gotcha. Do you try to work like a certain number of union jobs to get benefits and stuff like that? Or are you? No. No, because it's very expensive to be part of the union. I don't know. I just, I don't really know anybody who, in my corner of this field who, who does that. And the few people I know who have ended up like, you know, dropping out because union dues are very high and you don't need, you just don't need to be in it to do like top-notch doc work. Gotcha. Is the money less in documentary? For editing less than like for then for a scripted something i don't know because i've only worked on tiny films gotcha by tiny i you know i mean budget yeah but it's pretty it's pretty good like i'm not complaining sure because editors are like the biggest line item on a lot of documentary budgets sure gotta get through all that footage a, because it takes so long, but there's a premium for people who want to do the, it's grueling work. So, sure. And, you know, now that every like streamer network, everybody's making docs and there's seems to be like a shortage. It's like a s- supply and demand issue. Sure. Of people working at that level. So, yeah, no, I mean, I have no complaints about that. Do you do something when you're done with a project and you ship it off and it's finally out the door? Is there something that you do for yourself as like a celebration? You know. I'll have these like big daydreams about what that moment is going to look like. And it almost never, this can be very anticlimactic partly because it's it's the finishing part is such like a, uh, just like a struggle. In what way? There's so many decisions that have to be made and so many elements that have to come together at the end. Inevitably something happens with some licensing or archival or a million tech things go wrong. And, it just can be such a nightmare and like round the clock nightmare where you don't even take off a single day. And like, you know, you have to be managing graphics, music, archival, like all these things all at the same. Oh, fair use. That's another huge thing. So that's like if you're using a clip from a movie in a film and you don't have the rights to that movie, then you have to get that cleared by legal. And You know, sure. It just is so complex and so exhausting. I always try to plan a vacation. And then the other thing that happens is like almost every film I've ever worked on gets extended. So you like in your mind, you're like, oh, I'm going to be done by March and then cut to June and you still haven't locked picture. Do you have any advice for somebody who wants to be an editor? I mean, I can really only speak from my own experience, which is create your own opportunities. I think the best thing I ever did for myself was go out on the limb and make topspin and hire myself as the editor. Sure. And get that first feature credit. I don't know that I would be where I am without having done that. And so people ask me this question. I There's two things I like to say in terms of advice. One is try to make stuff and like get your skills set 
hone those skills as much as you can on mm-hmm. your own and give yourself credits if you can. And the other thing is more of a Patty Smith quote, but basically like build a good name. It took me a long time to get here. A lot of it came from being like a hard, dedicated worker and loving what I do. And then people wanting to work with me again and again. And like word of mouth makes a difference. Sure. Focus on like doing good work and then build a good name and then your career will advance. Do you have any projects in mind that you want to do yourself that you haven't maybe had the opportunity to? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing. It's like I sit here and complain <laughs> yeah, you really about how up. hard it is. And then at the same time, I'm like, I have all these films I want to make. Like, I have so many fun ideas about stories I want to tell and how I want to tell them. And I even have this idea for something scripted. So I often have this, like, fantasy of, like, going off into the desert and writing my script. Some, you know, taking some months off to do that. Sure. But I do have this dream project, which someone just contacted me about this week which made me think it could actually be a possibility i'm obsessed with music okay. i love music if i don't go see live music i start to wither okay and i've never made a music documentary in all these years except for my first original mississippi blues guitar player take it back to the roots <laughs> i like this that's the only music talk i've made and i want to make one about bonnie Raitt. She's like one of the greatest slide guitar players ever. Okay. Who has an amazing voice. And I feel like she's been a little bit forgotten. I mean, she's still touring. She's like a huge tour going on right now. She's still out there. But I notice like a lot of young people don't know who she is. And I just think she needs her due. I mean, I kind of said this before we started recording, but you specifically, more than anybody I know, have this balance, it seems, of technical skill and artistry. And they intersect more than anybody that I personally know in this, because the projects that you take on are, are things that you care about. It's stuff with, with meaning. There's a cause behind it. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm on this latest TV show and it's 20 weeks of work and clock in, clock out, kind of do your job thing. It, it seems like you really pick stuff that has a true story behind it. And then when you're not working on that, it seems like you're creating your own projects that are in the same vein. I just really admire that about you. Well, First, thank you for saying that. It's nice to be able to switch tracks. I mean, directing doesn't pay very well, so I have to edit, but I also love editing, so it all really kind of worked out in my favor. I love collaborating. The nice thing about the editing jobs that I get now, there's a support team, so I'll have an associate editor and an assistant editor, and then, you know, there's a post-production supervisor, and then there's there's just a lot of people. It's a real team effort at this level, whereas when I'm directing, I thus far haven't had huge budgets so i'm doing like seven jobs myself Mm -hmm. you know and that can be exciting in some respects and also overwhelming but i think that's partly why i have to kind of go back and forth it's a practical thing gotcha pay the bills but it also just worked like i said it worked out that i really enjoyed editing and you know i never i never set out to have this as a career it just became really clear around grad school and beyond that in order to have sustainable career you have to have like a focus you have to have a trade and editing was one that i was already doing gotcha well thank you so much for coming in and taking the time where can people find you if they want to find you or do you not want to be found (laughs) i am on instagram i'm not like a big social media person but yeah i'm on instagram you can find me there my handle is snooey's because Snooey was taken. Snooey was my nickname in grad school. It's S-N-E-W-I-E-S. All right. I'll link it in the show notes. (laughs) Thanks for coming in, Sarah. Thank you for having me. This was fun. 
If you want to watch Top Spin, Sarah's documentary about table tennis, head on over to Amazon Prime, where it's streaming for free if you're a member. You can check out On the Record and Allen vs. Farrow on HBO. If you or someone you know would be a great guest for this podcast, please reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at so.youworkinentertainment or email me adam at klaushousecreative.com. If you like this episode, tell someone about it. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening.